Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let's pray again together. All glory, wisdom, honor, and power to you, O God. For God, you loved us first. God, we speak of this too lightly if we leave it in history, for God, in truth, you love us first without ceasing. You love us first all the time. Before we could ever move to you, you are moving toward us here in the assembly of the saints. Now in this moment in the gift of corporate prayer, you love us first and it's your love for us that draws our prayer to you. In the celebration of the ordinance of baptism, in corporate worship and the singing of your praises, even in the declaration and the reception of your word through preaching, you have loved us first. In Jesus Christ, we praise you. Amen. Church, it's wonderful to be together to worship the Lord this morning, and I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 48. We've been away from Isaiah for a few weeks for Advent and then for a little New Year's series, but we're going to jump back into our chapter-by-chapter look at the book of Isaiah, and it's in the Old Testament. If you get to the book of Psalms, uh, just go forward a couple more books and you'll see Isaiah, and today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 48. As it happens, even though we've been away from Isaiah for a little while, Isaiah 48 is the end of this section of Isaiah. In chapter 49, it begins the servant songs, which are these phenomenal prophecies where we hear the voice of Jesus in Isaiah. And Isaiah 48 really summarizes everything that's been happening from Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through chapter 48. And the wonderful thing is that this chapter in the book of Isaiah is targeted I believe it's targeted to each heart in this room. Isaiah's intent in this passage is to so honor God and so humble us. Isaiah's intent in this passage is to so honor God and so humble us that we now have a new confidence in God's grace so we can trust him with our lives. If I had a title this chapter, I'd call it God's commitment to God's glory is God's greatest assurance to us. God wants to show us who he is so that we can have a new confidence in his grace and we can trust him. Even though we still fail, even though we don't know what to do, we can look to him and trust him. God's commitment to his glory is his great assurance to us. And I want to read Isaiah chapter 48, and this is one of those places in the Bible, I love reading the Bible slowly and carefully. This is one of those places in the Bible when as you read it, I would ask you to think about what it means, but I would also challenge you to think about how it means what it means. In other words, to read the Bible carefully as literature is to ask the question not just what does it say, But how does it say what it says? And how does the way that it says what it says highlight something about humanity, something about God, something about human history, and something about the divine plan of redemption? As you read this chapter and you ask the question, what does it say and how does it say what it says? What does it mean and how does it mean what it means? I'd ask you to look as we read this brief chapter of some uh, 22 verses 
you will find the anger and wrath of God in this chapter. Let that sit. Let that be as hot as it actually is. You'll find sorrow and sadness expressed from the heart of God in this chapter. The same God who is mighty and just and hot in his wrath is almost pleadingly tearful and sorrowful in this chapter. In this chapter, you will find people, you'll recognize them, who say to God, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they do whatever they want to do and ignore what God has said. And you will find God saying to those people, your pride has put you in a place where there will be nothing but strife in your life. And then it'll turn a corner and you'll find people who are humble, who listen to God's word, and you'll find God promising them peace like a river. And the center of it all is God's great commitment to God's glory as God's great assurance that he will never stop loving his people, that he will never stop loving his people. Not because his people have it all figured out and never fail anymore, but because God is committed to displaying his glory in the way that he loves his people. It's a phenomenal chapter. So I invite you to look at it with me. Isaiah 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them and suddenly I did them and they came to pass. But I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead is as brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did this. My carved image, my metal image commanded this. You have heard. Now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you've never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard. You have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off behold I've refined you but not as silver I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake he repeats verse 11 for my own sake I do it for how should my name be profaned my glory I will not give to another Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning. I've not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would have never been cut off or destroyed from before me. Get out from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Notice the first word in the chapter is here. God's going to use that word 10 times in Isaiah chapter 48. Listen to the same word. It's translated listen in verse 12. See verse 12? Listen to me. Oh, Jacob. Same word in verse 16. Hear God, he, you, you like watch God beckon with his fingers in verse 16 and say, draw near to me and hear this. Church, a word from God is your only hope. Church, a word from God is your only only light. Church, hearing a word from God is your only opportunity of escape from the selfish pride within you and the deceitfulness of the world around you. We have to hear the word of God. We have to hear the word of God. And when we hear it, we have to draw near and pay attention to it. We have to value it. We have to remember it. That's why as soon as he says in verse 1, hear this, he says in verses 1 and 2, you, you, I spoke my word to you and you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you went on believing your own stuff. My word was not an escape from the, from the deception of your own mind and the deception of the world around you. You see how he addresses them in verse 1. And I'd ask you, I'd ask you, is this how God would have to address you? You swear by the name of the Lord, you confess that God is your God, but not in truth. We're right. In our, uh, in our situation, we would say there are people who come to church, but they don't truly belong to the church. They like coming to church, but they, it's not true that they are really Christian. They don't really trust God. They're not really walking with him. We just welcomed the new members last week. If you were here to observe that, we read our church covenant and we welcomed that set of new members. This is why um, every new member to Racine Bible Church has to have an interview with one of our pastors or, or one of our elders where we talk through the, the reality and the credibility of their Christian testimony. This is why, in addition to church membership, we have a process really following Matthew 18 where someone can be removed from church membership when by the repeated and unrepentant decisions of their life, they show that their claim of, test, uh, of following Christ isn't, isn't valid. God's concerned about this. He was concerned about it for Israel. He's equally concerned about it for the church. 
And if I challenge you to see, is that addressing you in verses 1 and 2, I'd say the same thing in verse 4, church. Look at verse 4, and I'd ask you again, is this targeting you? Look at what he says. Because I know you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. This is not a compliment that you're good at weightlifting. What a description. And I would just urge you to admit that you're never very far from this being said about you. Neither am I. Imagine this. And when I say imagine it, uh, it's not some fantastic imagination thing. It's like actually likely that it would happen. Imagine this. You're having some problems in your life. And so you call a respected, godly woman or man to help you. And they say, sure, I'll help you. And you get together. And th this is a mentor to you and, and is a friend to you. And you talk to them for 45 minutes about the problems that you're having in life. And you ask them for advice. And this godly mentor leans forward after you're done explaining your problems, looks you in the eye and says, I, I see what your problem is. Your head is made out of metal and your neck is so stiff that you refuse to bend and listen to God's word. That's what God says here. I, I'm a full-time pastor and I just yesterday or day before I was taking a walk with Amy and I was reflecting with her uh, of a couple of times in the not too recent past when I called a godly mentor and said, I'm having these problems, this, 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 this. And I'm expecting them to like undo the Jenga problem of the circumstances in my life. And they have said to me, well, not sure what we can do about all those circumstances, but have you thought about your own heart? Are you being humble? or not? Are you being teachable or not? Are you fearing man or are you fearing God? And these questions that call me to humility and they call me to really listen to the word of God. Verse 4 is describing people who hear the word of God but they don't listen. Verse 5 Look at the lest in verse 5. The word lest means uh, in order to prevent you from. The word lest means so that this would not happen. Look at verse 5. God says, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. So I, I used prophecy, God says. Lest you should say, my idol did this or my carved image and my metal image commanded this. Well, that's a scorcher. It reminds me of, um, and this is some of you who I've wept with, like who say, I, I cannot give my adult child money because she'll spend it on heroin. I can't give my grown-up son money because he'll spend it at the bar or he'll bet on football with it. I can't give them this lest they do something bad with it. This is God Almighty saying, I had to announce what I was doing before I did it 
so that you wouldn't attribute these events to your idols. This is how far God's people have strayed with their iron neck. Absolutely flooring to me that in the prophecy of Isaiah, it's as if prophetic utterance itself is a concession to God's people's unyielding obsession with idols and that idols do things and that idols do this and that idols do that. What a thing for God to say. And then we get to the core of the chapter, which is verses 9 through 11, which is really the core of the chapter, which says that God's commitment to God's glory is God's greatest assurance of his love to us, is God's greatest assurance of his perseverance with us. Because you see what he says, for my name's sake I defer my anger, for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned, my glory? I will not give to another. Even though Israel had a stiff neck, even though Israel had a forehead made of hard, impenetrable metal, God says, I haven't cast you off. Israel, I haven't cast you off. And it's not because your heart is so soft and your neck is so pliable. I haven't cast you off because my glory resides on you through my everlasting covenant. What a gracious thing for God to say. What a God-honoring thing for God to say. God made a commitment to be gracious to Israel so that his gracious name would be known throughout the earth. This was not contingent on Israel doing this or not doing that. Oh, sure, any generation's experience of it was contingent on their behavior. The chapter says as much. But his overall commitment to them was not conditional, but rather unconditional. I actually really like the ESV study Bible footnote to verse 9, when it says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. And then it says in verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do this. And the, the little study note in the ESV study Bible is very short, but it is, it is uh, provocative. It simply says this, God's deepest motive is his own glory. That's a very short sentence, but that is quite a gutsy thing to say. Like we're going to talk about God's deepest motive, but at least that study Bible, and I like the way they put it, says God's deepest motive is his own glory. That's what he's saying here in verse 9 and verse 11 of Isaiah 48. The, the wonderful God-centered, God's glory of the whole thing. And I, I've become addicted to that many years ago, and my time in Isaiah is just making that good addiction worse or better in my life, I suppose I should say. From time to time, I run into people who they, they just they're just kind of afraid of just taking their Bible straight. Like, let's not get too carried away with God's sovereignty. Let's not get too carried away with God's glory. Let's just, let's add in some other things. And I just say, you're missing so much. Because if, if you're afraid of, of like a, God's sovereignty or you're afraid of like classical Calvinism, look, look at what the actual text says. 
God's glory and God's sovereignty, look at what it says in verse 9, is the reason that he hasn't snuffed you out. This is nothing to be afraid of. God's glorious sovereignty is your greatest assurance that he will never give up on sanctifying you. It's not something that you have to protect yourself from by like angling it with some other point of view. God's sovereign commitment to his glory is the best news that we could get because it means that though we fail and though we on our own would turn away, God will not fail. There's a verse in uh, Psalm 103, verse 19, that says, God's sovereignty rules over all. But listen to the context of that, like, super strong statement about God's sovereignty and God's glory. It says in Psalm 103, verse 19, God's sovereignty rules over all. But the context is, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Psalm 103, verse 10, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is the context of this marvelous statement of God's unimpeachable sovereignty. So I would say from Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11, I, I would say it's a fitting summary of the contents of this chapter to say God's commitment to God's glory is God's greatest assurance to us of his work in us of his perseverance with us, of his patience with us, of his love for us. Because it's saying what we could not deserve, what we could never gain for ourselves, it is given to us out of the reality of the divine nature. Because God is God. Because God is love. Because God has chosen to make these commitments. You notice the picture of verse 10? Silver and the refiner's fire. We understand that we, I think we, if, if you've read the Old Testament, you understand that concept of the refiner's fire. The silver has good silver in it, and it has bad dross and other materials in it, and they put it in that hot fire to burn the dross away. Well, why does verse 10 say, I have refined you, but not as silver? This is going to hurt, but it's going to be good. <laughs> what, what he's meaning by saying not as silver is, um, I refined you, but y'all didn't have no silver in ya. That's what it means. I couldn't refine you as silver because when I put you in the fire, it was only dross and you would have been burned up if my work in your life depended on you. But glory to God, it doesn't. God's work in your life depends on God. Depends on God. This is why this is good news. It's not insulting for God to say there was no silver in you. It's not scary to, to encounter God's sovereignty, God's glory, as if that's going to steal our joy. Our very joy and our security of for eternity is grounded in God's glory, in God's sovereignty. He's saying, you, you got to depend on me for your future because uh, if you were depending on me, you know, like we say in a sentimental way sometimes, God, 
God sees beyond our failure and He finds the diamond in the rough. I understand that feels nice, but that's not what Isaiah says. He says, I could not refine you as silver because it was all rough, no diamond. But instead of that meaning that God would irrevocably reject them, it means that God unconditionally elected them to do His great work in their life. What a God. What a gracious God. One of my favorite sentences in, I guess you'd say in classical theology, I first heard it from Sinclair Ferguson in a sermon he was giving on the Gospel of John. I then, I then heard it from uh, Dr. Carl Truman, who was giving a, a Winterham lecture at the Master's Seminary about Luther and the Reformation, and, and uh, Carl Truman attributed to Luther this sentence. But then when I looked further, through my historical study, it seems to me that Martin Luther got this sentence from the Apostle John's Instagram when he was working on it. So I'm not sure exactly where it came from. But the sentence is this. Um, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. That's what it means that God loved us first. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The contrast is between the love of God and the love of man. The love of man is drawn into being when, as a 15-year-old boy, I said, isn't she lovely? The love, of, the love of man is drawn into being by seeing something lovely and attractive and desirable. Not so the love of God. For Jesus Christ came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Because he wanted to take evil people, foolish people, weak people, and turn them into something beautiful. This is what he does. This is who he is. Isaiah's intent in this passage is to so humble us and so honor God that for the rest of our life, he was speaking to Israel in the exile here, but for us too, that even though circumstances are difficult and we cannot see the way through, th this we know. If we don't depend on self, but we depend on God, we will have peace. The glory of God in the calling of his people well, 9 through 11 is the core of the chapter. And then you see in verses 12 and 13, he talks about creation. That's kind of cool too. He says in verse 13, my hand laid the foundation of the earth. The glory of God is shown, verses 9 through 11, in him uh, calling undeserving people and forgiving uh, un undeserving people. The glory of God is shown, verses 12 and 13, in God calling creation into being out of nothing. And it's as if he's saying in verses 9 through 11, uh, it wasn't that you were so worthy of being forgiven that that's what the call was. It was that I chose to forgive you, to forgive you. He's, he's saying essentially in verses 12 and 13, when I created the world, the world wasn't asking me to be created. 
Nobody was calling me. Nobody was waking me up and calling me to do something. I just did it out of my sovereign glory. There's a concise uh, sentence from uh, Alec Mattier's commentary on verse 13. It's concise, but it's punchy. He says this, at the first, God was not pressed by any external agency into initiating creation. God was not pushed by some external agency to create the world. As at the first, God was not pressed by any external agency into creation. So at the last, our God shall stand unchallenged by any force that ever tried to oppose him. He alone is God from first to last. And he alone as God will triumphantly finish what he started even if what he started with is all dross and no silver, he will still triumphantly finish what he started because God and only God creates new things out of nothings. Maybe you noticed, if you've seen this before, verse 16, contextually and interpretively, we have a decision to make in verse 16. God is speaking in the first part of the verse, but then someone says, God sent me, and I am filled with God's spirit. So uh, because we're entering into the servant of the Lord section in Isaiah 49, I interpret Isaiah 48, verse 16, not as Isaiah speaking, but as the servant of the Lord speaking, that is, as Jesus speaking. So God the Father is sending God the Son in the fullness of the Spirit. If that interpretation is correct, then Isaiah 48 verse 16 is one of the, one of the clearest affirmations of the, of the three persons of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And then notice verse 17 through 19. A subtitle for verses 17 and 19, which is a helpful subtitle to remember in your life, like remember this one, is this. The cost of resisting and the benefit of receiving. You see what he says? The cost of resisting. I could have taught you to profit. I could have, verse 17, I could have led you in the way that you would go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. The cost of resisting and the benefit of receiving. The consequence of your choice to not heed God's word but to despise it. To say, yeah, yeah, I heard you, God, but I'm really hearing my own mind and my own ideas. We get so locked with that forehead of brass that our own ideas about reality guide us and govern us, and we have to let those go and let God's word show us what's true. And that if only, in verse 18, that if only kills me. Oh, if only you had paid attention to my commandments. There are no hypotheticals with God. He knows the end from the beginning. Scripture just said that. But, but in, in, his, in his, his speaking to us little children with a lisping voice, God shows us this hypothetical. How, how different your life would have been if you had listened to me. How different your life would have been if you had listened to me. What a gracious thing for God to say. It sounds a lot like what God, God the Son, says in Matthew 
23, when Jerusalem is about to crucify him. And he said, and as he stood over the hillside and he wept, and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have sent to it. How often would I have gathered you as a hen, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were unwilling. Oh, how different it would have been under his wings, safe, sheltered, instead of desolate and alone. Oh, how different it would have been. He's saying, oh, that you didn't have a forehead of brass, oh, that you didn't have a neck of iron. And so you see why verses 9 through 11 are the heart of the chapter because God's saying, I've placed my name on Israel. Israel's like addicted to idols and like losing everything. Israel's stubborn. They have a hard heart. So what's God going to do? Well, the only answer is verse 9. For God's own name He's going to defer his anger, not destroy his people, not cut off his people, but rather for the sake of his own glory, he'll redeem his people and save them. God's great commitment to God is his great assurance to us. So church, just let that land on you. Whatever God is doing in your life, is not an experiment that God's going to give up on when he finally finds out what a lost cause you are. It's not how it works. That's how it works with people. People give up on each other all the time. That's not how it works with God. Whatever God's doing in your life is not some, it's not some experiment that he's going to abandon when he finally gets fed up with you. That would be the case if God was like a man. But he isn't. God's God. And so here God declares that his commitment to save you and his commitment to work in your life is his commitment to his own glory, his own promise, his own covenant. He's essentially saying, I have to quit being God to quit on my people. He's not going to do that. This is our hope. This is why, you know, things go up and down in the church. We have good days. We have bad days. We have good years. We have bad years. And this is why our hope is that we will, we will prevail in the end. Not because we're so good at, at not failing anymore, but because where we have failed, Christ has succeeded, and God's covenant with us is that now we are in Christ. This is the gospel. God has done what the law weakened by our flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who no longer walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. We saw it. We saw the gospel pictured in the baptism buried with him in death raised to walk in newness of life in the newness of the spirit. This is why our confidence, Paul quotes Isaiah thoroughly in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. And the end of Romans 8, when he's ramping up to quoting Isaiah, is where the apostle gives us that, that, that barrage of questions. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. 
as it's written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rest, rest in Christ, church. And if you are here and you have not sheltered in his bleeding side, today is the day of salvation. Throw up your arms and say, I have failed at everything. And you will hear God say, that's okay. I knew you would. And I sent Jesus to save you. Let's pray. Lord God, we're overwhelmed, humbled that you loved us first. And we're overwhelmed with confidence that because you have set your love on us, it no longer depends on us, but on you. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Give your church that unshakable confidence in Christ. And so be glorified in the worship of your people. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.